Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. 26. We're going to look at verse 36 through 46. While you're turning there, I want to just just give you the, 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 bring you up to speed to this part of the passage. So this is the beginning of the week that changed the world. These seven days recorded in Scripture changed the entire world. It didn't just change the world, it changed everything about the world. It, it flipped the whole script completely upside down. You see, on this day of the seven days, day one, we know it as um, Palm Sunday. The text we're going to look at is a few days past this day. But on Palm Sunday, we find that in Matthew 21. Here's what happens. Jesus, for the first time after the raising of Lazarus, enters into the city of Jerusalem. But he enters in in a different way than he's ever entered in before. He enters in riding on a colt. And as he enters in, the whole city begins to go crazy. They begin to gather around the streets. And as Jesus is walking through the streets, they begin to shout these words, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They begin to declare him as king. They begin to speak of him as an honored guest, one of power and one of, 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 of great strength. They are in such a state of adoration that they begin to lay their clothing on the ground in front of the colt, on the street ground, so that the colt can walk through it. They begin to throw palm branches down. All of these things a symbol of the honor and the greatness of a king entering his city. Certainly the 12 disciples looked at each other, said, yeah, it's finally happening. This is it. He's going to be the one that he's been waiting to be. See, up to this point, Jesus was speaking in terms of victory and in terms of triumph, but they had yet to see that fully. And so they were no doubt excited because they were the top 12 in the leadership structure of this new king. Now remember, they, were, in, they were, were oppressed by the Romans. And so even though they were a people, the Jews, the Israelites, they had an overseer or an oppressor in the Romans. They were given certain freedoms, but they weren't totally free. And so they believed that this was the time when they would get full freedom back to who they were. In fact, no doubt they would have been wearing hats that said, make Israel great again. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind that was behind what they were thinking. After all, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty demonstrative of power, isn't it? The very next scene is Jesus going into the temple. And as he goes to the temple, he walks through the courtyard and he sees this, the Pharisees selling uh, offerings. 
And what they were doing is they had made the temple, the, the place of worship, a place of monetary gain. And so Jesus begins to flip the tables over. He begins to thrash the cages, setting all the doves and the goats free. And then he said, my house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. And the disciples high-fiving each other, yes, that's the God I'm talking about. This is why we're following him. Finally, he's standing up to the ones who were oppressing us, both religiously and governmentally. And then he brings the disciples to this room on the second floor. And as he sits around the table, they begin to celebrate the Passover feast. Now, remember, the Passover is the time where Israel remembered when the angel of death passed over the Israelites. It was a remembrance that when there was blood placed on the sides and the top of the threshold of the doorway, the people of God would be spared from death. And the very next thing that happened is they were released out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt. You've got to go all the way to the Old Testament to know this. They were released from bondage and they were set free as a people. So that Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And then he grabbed a cup full of wine. And he said, this is my blood. Drink. My blood will be shed for you. He took the bread and he said, this is my body. Eat. This will be broken for you. And then almost as if he's going backwards, he then put a towel around his waist and he got on his hands and knees and he began to wash the disciples' feet. This is not the posture of a king. This is not the actions of a strong man. This is the actions of a servant, a weak man, a small man. And it was so irritating to Peter particularly that he said, No, Lord, you're not washing my feet. Uh-uh. I'm not following you because you're washing feet. I'm following you because you're the I am. And Jesus said, Unless I wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And of course, Peter, being Peter, went all the way to the other side of the, the, uh, the aisle and said, okay, well, wash every part of me. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm showing you how I want you to live. The Scripture tells us that we are to be imitators of God, which means our, uh, our uh, um, model for living is Jesus. The reason he came and walked amongst this earth, along this earth was to be God in the flesh, to be the Word made flesh, so that we would know how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to love and indeed how we're supposed to die. Because right after they took this meal together, Jesus stood up and walked them across the valley to the Mount of Olives. And he chose a particular place called Beth, uh, Gethsemane. In chapter 26, verse 36, the Bible says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. The Mount of Olives was exactly what it sounds like. It was a mount 
of olives. When we go to Israel in February, we will take you to this spot. You walk along the side of the mountain and you see these olive trees. And in among those olive trees, what you'll also see are the thorns that would have been used to create the crown of thorns to be pressed into the skull of our Lord. That long, hypodermic needle sharp, just brushing against would prick your finger and cause you to bleed. And so he went to a place called the Olive Press. Put that in the back of your mind, because here's what happens with olives. They're grown, and they become a highly valuable commodity after they are pressed. Some people buy olives. Most people buy olive oil. And there's grades of olive oil. You've got the high grade, which is very expensive. That comes from the first press. It's the the beginning of the oil coming out. That's the highest grade of oil. So there's a little bit of pressure coming on and that oil comes out and that is captured and sold at such a high price. The second press is the medium grade press and it's a little less expensive than the high grade, not quite as cheap as the the lower grade. But nevertheless, it's a particular grade of oil that after it's pressed once, it's pressed a second time to get that. And then the last press... They press it, to the point, press it to the point of completely crushing the olive to where there is nothing left but trash. It is fully pressed, fully spent. The only thing that comes out of there is the oil. The rest of it is thrown away. There's nothing left after the final press. Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives, to a place that is named the Olive Press. And he tells the twelve to stand here while he goes a little further. So the twelve stand, but then he says, James, John, Peter, you come with me. So he walks with them a little deeper into the garden. And as they go a little deeper, he then says to the to the three disciples that he called, he said, you stay here. Let's just read it. It says, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The weight of the situation was weighing on him. He was was aware that he was in the crux of the press. The weight had already been pressing down, but he knew that it would get tighter and harder upon him. And he says to these three, pray for me. Because he reveals his heart of what's going on. He says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. In other words, the weight is so great that I am at the pit of sorrow. I could not be more broken than I am right now. That's why the scripture says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The reason that we have the strength and the courage to go through any situation that we have is because we know that Jesus has walked that path before us. He gets it. The reason you can cry out to God in Total humiliation and brokenness is because he has been there and he gets it and he understands. There is an empathy and a sympathy 
and a strength because Jesus has walked the same path. And it began, most notably, in the Garden of Eden. Excuse me, in the... Actually, it did, but it began in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples, his three disciples, to pray. <clears throat> and then going a little further, verse 39, the Bible says he fell face down and he prayed. He was not in a casual praying posture. He was not in a church praying posture, so to speak. He was in a desperate praying posture. The Bible says he fell face down. He was humiliated by anybody who would be watching. He was broken. He knew it. And he cried out to the Father. And listen to what he prayed. He says, my Father. You know, usually when Jesus prayed, he prayed with the beginning by saying, Father. Father, bless this food. Father, I ask for your people. Father. Now, the Father is an intimate term. One other time, he, he prayed, my God, my God. But that was following Psalm 22. That was when he was on the cross. This time is the only time we have this recorded. My Father. The understanding here is that he was in such a desperate place that perhaps the words could barely roll off of his tongue. My Father. I just imagine that this would have been... It would have taken every ounce of energy he had. My Father. His prayer, though, if it is possible. It was possible. If it is possible. Take this cup from me. Lord, if there's any other way. If I don't have to go through this. If I can go around this. If it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will. Yours be done. What Jesus does here is what he calls us to do. Surrender. Now I want you to see the dichotomy here. You have the Son of the living God. You have the Word become flesh. You have the One who created the stars and the mountains and the moon who created you and me in His own image. And yet, here He is in utter, complete, desperate surrender. You have the One who is stronger than any strong man who on His own shoulders has the government resting upon them. Not just one government, but the government of the world. In other words, he has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is nothing that is not underneath his feet. And yet his words were, I surrender the epitome of strength in the most desolate, lowly place. And no doubt the disciples were totally confused because what started off as a week of power and strength and authority in their own eyes has become backwards in a place of surrender and desolation and humility and brokenness and perceived weakness. And then Jesus gets up and he goes to his three disciples. Now, if it were me, I would have kicked them to wake them up. I don't know how he did it, but 
he went to him to them in verse 40. And he said, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he asked Peter. Why did he ask Peter? Because remember, Peter was the one that just moments before said, Jesus, I don't care what they do. Doesn't matter if everyone denies you. I will never deny you. And he believed it. I will be strong. He thought he was surrendered. I will be the one to carry you across the finish line, Jesus. You can count on me. And yet when Jesus was in the deepest, darkest moment of his life, Peter was snoring. Peter, could you not even stay awake with me one hour? You said you would die for me. You said that I had everything. You said you would never leave. You said that even if everybody else fell away, you would be there for me. And in one hour, you were sound asleep. That sound familiar? Anybody? You want to know why I think that's the case? Because up to this point, Peter had committed, committed his life to Jesus. I commit my life to Jesus. What does that mean? I make a promise to Jesus. I promise I'm going to follow you. I promise I'm going to be holy. I promise I'm going to read my Bible. I promise I'm going to pray. Do you know that the gospel cannot be fulfilled if you commit your life to Jesus? You're not good enough, strong enough, wise enough, powerful enough, loving enough to fulfill that commitment. Because you committing your life to Jesus has something to do with you, not with God. In fact, here's another thing I thought about this week. And it really, the, the more I thought about it, the more it, just, the more it just ate at me. How many times do we say to people as preachers, just give Jesus a chance? That's blasphemy. Maybe that's too strong. But still, give Jesus a chance? Really? Here, just let me give you a trial period of Jesus. If you are on a trial period of Jesus, you are not a follower of Jesus. That's not surrender. That's a, I'll try you to see what you can do to my life. See if you can add value to my life. See if you can do something to make me happy. See what I get out of the deal. And after I've tried you for 30 days, then I'll decide if I want to continue the arrangement or stop and do something else. Guys, that's nuts. You don't give Jesus a chance. Give him a chance at what? Give him a chance to make you happy? Give him a chance to give you peace? Give him a chance to solve your problems? You know what happens when we, when we try Jesus? After we get our, sol our problems solved, we go back to handling it ourselves. I know that sounds harsh, and I don't mean that to be that way, but I believe it's truth. You cannot commit your life to Jesus. You won't follow through on your commitment. Do you know what it means to be born again? It's exactly what Jesus did. You surrender your life to Jesus. Surrender is the only way. It is the way of the cross. It is the way of the gospel. 
The end of the seven days, we have this victorious resurrection of Jesus. He busts out of the grave and then he reveals himself and he shows him the scars. He even lets uh, 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 one of the disciples stick his fingers in the, in the wounds. And, and he said, look, I told you I was going to die. I told you I was going to come back to life. And because of all of these things, you can see me in all of my glory and all of my power. I will never be in that position again. I died once so that you don't have to, and I rose so that you will as well. There is victory in the resurrection, but listen to me closely. You cannot have the resurrection unless you have the death. We're living as followers of Jesus and wanting the resurrection. We want the victory. We want all of that stuff, but we don't want to die. You cannot have a resurrection unless you have a funeral. And that is where we find ourselves today. You say, well, why should I die? Because Jesus did. Jesus, when he prayed, my father Verse 42, again a second time, he went and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Let me tell you what surrender looks like. Surrender is waving the white flag. In a wartime, if you surrender, you have laid down your arms. You are no longer resisting. In fact, when you surrender, your plans don't matter anymore. They are dead with the surrender. Your skill set doesn't matter anymore. The skill set is dead with the surrender. Your hopes and your dreams, they don't matter anymore. They are dead with surrender. To surrender means, Jesus, I give you everything. There's no such thing as a half-hearted surrender. That's a game. There's no, thing, there's no such thing as, I surrender some, but not all. That's not surrender, because surrender means, I give up, I quit, I'm stopping doing things my way, and I'm letting you take control now. Listen to me. Every problem in your life is a problem of surrender. Every single one. If you have marriage problems, it is a problem of surrender. Now, a marriage is two people, so you can be surrendered and the other person not. You're going to have problems, but it's still a problem of surrender. If you have mind issues it's a, uh, in terms of, 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 of your mind going to places they shouldn't, that's a problem of surrender. Every problem you have is a problem of surrender. You say, well, is that it? I just, the problem just goes away when I surrender? No, 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 no. The problem doesn't go away when you surrender. It's just that the problem becomes God's and not yours. Let me be careful here. You're still in the midst of it, but you surrender and you say, God, I've tried to fix it. I've tried to solve it. I don't know what to do. And isn't that the way we do it? We come to God, Lord, I surrender this problem to you. Now let me tell you how we're going to fix it. That's not surrender. Lord, I give up. I've tried. I've messed it up even more. I've dug a deeper hole. I have nothing to add to this except just saying, Lord, only you can do something here. And God says, yes, that is truth. Now your first step is this. And your next step is this. And day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, God works you through whatever problem it is. Sometimes he delivers you from it. 
Sometimes he delivers you through it. And sometimes he sustains you in the midst of it. And that's where you stay. But nevertheless, victory only comes through surrender. So have you surrendered? Again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away again and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. This time, he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. My betrayer is near. And the next scene is Judas coming through with torches, with a group of men with torches and clubs to arrest him. A couple of things I want you to remember. Number one, Jesus never lacked authority in this whole thing. Jesus is the Word made flesh. John chapter 3, in the beginning was the, or John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By Him and through Him, all things are created. He, he, he's still authoritative. He's still divine. Jesus did not become not divine when He became human. He was fully human and fully God. But what happened, we find in Philippians chapter 2, that He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He took on the nature of a servant. So He humbled Himself and became a servant, and He became obedient unto death. In other words, He surrendered to the will of the Father. He gave His rights away so that He could follow under His Father's direction. Why? I think partly was that he was modeling for us and then partly that was the only way for him to die for the sins of the world. You have to remember that Jesus was fully divine, fully God, yet he, he, he pushed that, that authority to the side. It, it, it's like he had a nuclear button, but he just never used it. It was at his access at any time. And that's why the Bible says that while he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels to relieve him and to release him from the cross, and yet he chose not to. It was restrained power is what it was. He never lost his authority. He never lost his divinity. He chose the path of servanthood and weakness. Why? Because He wanted us to realize that as strong as we are, we're not strong enough to fight the forces that come against God. We battle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all these other things that are far stronger than you and I could ever imagine to be. His strength is perfect when our strength is small, in matter of fact, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. In other words, the more we surrender, the stronger we are. Isn't that backwards? I also want you to remember that Jesus gave us a model of surrender, but He also gave us a promise. And He, he backed up that promise by the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going away. But I'm going to send you the Comforter. And the Comforter will be my presence inside of you that will remind you and actually give you the strength in your surrender to do all that needs to be done. 
You know, there are two ordinances we, we celebrate as a church or we, we practice as a church. An ordinance is something that's sacred and holy to us, right? You know what the two ordinances are? Baptism and communion. What is baptism and communion all about? They're about the death of Jesus. They're about His surrender. Or the ordinance of, of communion, Lord's Supper, we take a cup and we take the bread and we, we, we drink the cup and we eat the body or, or we eat the bread and that's a symbol of, of what Jesus did on this time when He was in the upper room with His disciples. But there's something we're doing while we're taking communion. What does the Bible say we're doing while we're taking communion? We are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming His surrender. What about baptism? When we baptize, we are taking a person, we are lowering them under the water and bringing them back up. Why? Because we say it this way, you are baptized into Christ in His death, raised to life, or raised again in the newness of life. You know that in other countries, the baptisms don't look like ours? In other countries, the baptisms are, shape, are the shape of a cross. Did you know that? Why? Because in other countries, when you are baptized, that is your public confession of Christ. What you do when you are baptized is you are literally surrendering your life to the gospel. Because it is a public declaration that you no longer follow the, the, the religious culture of your place. You are now following something different. You are following Jesus. And when you are baptized in many other cultures, you are cut off from your family, you are cut off from your friends, you are cut off from your business, you are cut off from everything that you know. And the reason that church attendance isn't a problem there is because the church becomes the family of God, because everybody else has left you. For us, we get baptized as a symbol of our faith. And sometimes we, sometimes we do that kind of flippantly, not realizing that if we were in another country, we would be offering our life on an altar to Jesus simply by being publicly baptized. It's that serious. A friend that I met this past week, he, um, his name is John. He told me, he said, you know, when I was a missionary in the early 90s to Algiers, or Algeria, one of the, I can't remember which one it was. He said, I, I, I went there and while the preacher was preaching, the service was going on, the police busted through the door. And they went up to the pastor, and they arrested him and started to escort him out. And one of the men in the church stood up and said, if you're going to arrest him, you have to arrest me too. And then another man stood up and said, if you're going to arrest them, you have to arrest me too. And another one stood up and said, if you're going to arrest them, you must arrest me too. And another one stood up, and another one stood up, and another one stood up. And before long, 12 or 13 men were standing up saying, if you're going to arrest them, you have to arrest me too. Why? Because they had surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, and they knew their life was not their own. They knew they were bought with the price, not with the price, not with, with gold and silver, that they were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. They knew that when they were baptized into Christ, they were raised again to be totally new in everything, and their whole life was changed at that moment. They still struggled, and yet all of their struggles came to the end of saying, but I surrender all. The police looked around and said, how are we going to take all these guys? And they left. 
You know, the reason we don't want to surrender, a couple different reasons. One, we, we're, we don't really know who God is. We don't believe who He says about what, who he says He is. We don't believe He's good. We believe that if we surrender to God, He's going to do something awful in our life. He's going to send us to Africa, or He's going to make us do something we don't want to do. Yeah, guess what? Most of the time, He's going to make us do something we don't want to do until we actually do it, and then we realize, that's what I needed all along. Amen? We look back and we say, God, thank you for, thank you for this. Thank you for this. I met another friend named D. Ray. Him and his new, his new wife were going to come and speak to us, hopefully in August. About three years ago, his wife's best friend called him and said, I, I can't get a hold of your wife. What's going on? He said, I, I don't know. They went home and she had died suddenly. Out of nowhere. Dropped to the floor. Gone. And that began a journey of grieving and lamenting and sorrow in this man that pulled out the depth of brokenness. Having been married for 30 plus years and in the morning saying, see at dinner, and then knowing that there was no other dinner. The depths of his pain came out in his pen. And today, he actually has been married, as of two days ago, 13 days. He married a girl who was, I'll let them tell you the story, amazing story, but here's the point. He, when he surrendered, he surrendered all. And he never would have chosen that path, but God has turned beauty or ashes into beauty. He is taking the depths of his pain, and he has used, my friend, to minister to thousands upon thousands upon thousands who are grieving without hope. And because of his surrender, he is giving hope beyond hope. On the Facebook page today, I'll share, you, share with you the blog of how you can read what he's written. You know, my, my call to you today is, I think, what Jesus' call is. Surrender. In just a moment, we're going to have our regular invitation. But the invitation is going to be very specific Number one, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never entered into a relationship with Him, I'm asking you to let God save you. I'm asking you to say, God, I surrender. My sin condemns me. The Bible says that it's great. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works. I'm asking you to trust in Jesus by yielding. Trust Him by surrendering. The second thing is this. I'm going to ask you to... Take a posture of prayer that Jesus took in the garden. I'm going to ask you to get on your knees. And I'm going to ask you just to spend... We're not going to rush this time. I'm going to ask you to just surrender to God. Maybe you're born again and you just, you're, you, you've held things or you've, you've kept secret closets. And you, you just... Whether you're afraid or whether, you're, you're, whether it's pride or whatever. I'm asking you to literally give God a blank check. Sign your name Push it across the table and say, Jesus, I am yours. I don't know what to do. Good, you're not surrendered if you come with a plan. Come to him and say, Jesus, I'm 100% yours. And let God give you what you need to do next. I've been very passionate this morning. 
I hope it hasn't come across as yelling. I hope it's come across as an urgency. We are in desperate need of men and women to surrender all. The enemy is coming in like a flood. I'm not spiritualizing this. I'm telling you, as your pastor, I'm seeing the enemy attack us on every single side. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to kill our families. He wants to kill our marriages. He wants to destroy our children. He wants to mess with our job. He wants to sidetrack us, all because he does not want us to surrender. But what he doesn't know is that God is almighty. He doesn't know that he cannot have our children because we won't let him. He doesn't know.